Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello 2022. We're kicking the new year into high gear with a handful of heart-pounding suspense novels. This is chapter 201 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and coming up, Dirk Hustler shares the best piece of life and writing advice he's ever gotten from his best-selling father. Polar Bears get a starring role in the new eco-thriller from Alice Henderson. Shay Earnshaw forces us to question everything we know in her adult fiction debut. Plus, a volcanic eruption in Hawaii unearths a body that should have stayed hidden in the latest crime novel from Robert McCall. Fearless adventurer Dirk Pitt has been entertaining readers with his daring ocean escapades since the early 1970s, when he was first created by author Clive Cussler. Since 2004, Clive's son Dirk has written the books with him, and he continues to carry on the family business following Clive's death in 2020. I got to chat with Dirk about the latest installment in the action-packed series, The Devil's Sea. Tell us what readers can expect in this latest adventure. Well, I, I hope it's a typical pet uh, uh, adventure that uh, keeps the action going and the pages turning. Uh, we have Pitt in the uh, Luzon Strait, which is north of the Philippines. He's just out doing his typical oceanographic survey work when he's called to try and locate a hypersonic missile that the Chinese had fired off and that had failed and crashed into the sea and holds great technological promise. Uh, a short time later, they discover, uh, his kids discover some Tibetan artifacts in a plane wreck, and uh, that leads into a whole different sort of historical chase uh, into India to try and recover uh, an ancient uh, Tibetan relic that has uh, significance both for the Tibetan Buddhist and the Dalai Lama, uh, as well as the technological aspect of, <laughs> of the hypersonic missile on the other side of the story. So hopefully it all ties together at the end. You've brought Dirk's kids into this story, kind of like your dad brought you into into Dirk's world. And why was the time really right to make Summer and Dirk Jr. integral to the exploits and, and the adventures going on? Well, I, th- I think they've kind of taken a, a step up as the books have progressed. So he actually introduced them in Valhalla Rising, which was uh, probably about uh, 10 or 11 books ago. And so they've, they've been a part of the series uh, ever since then. And I think uh, as they've aged maybe a bit, they were, I think, fresh out of college when he first introduced them. So maybe they're a little bit older now, a little bit more experienced. 
and capable of, of, of sort of handling themselves and, and maybe their own adventures. So they can take a, kind of a, a larger role in, in at least a subplot as part of the, the, the pit books. This book's release must be very bittersweet for you because it's the last one you co-wrote with your dad, right? Well, actually, it isn't. Uh, uh, the prior one was. So I really didn't uh, didn't have much interplay with my father on this one. He had passed really before I got uh, uh, really got into it. So uh, this is kind of a standalone without him, I'm afraid. How how was that writing process for you? Because I know you guys used to write chapters and go back and forth and then come together and, and write together. It must have been so strange for you. Yeah, especially at the front end. I mean, that's that's where we really did the most collaboration was was uh, in putting the, the plots together. Uh, we would work back and forth to generate ideas and try and come up with a plot and then produce an outline. And then I would typically go off and do the writing and then sort of feed him uh, maybe 50 or 100 pages at a time. So uh, I definitely missed his creative creative input at the front end of, of putting the story together because he was such a such an imaginative guy. And uh, he, he always thought outside the box and, and could come up with some, some crazy and interesting ideas that, that make the stories fly. So I definitely, uh, definitely miss that part of, of working with him when, uh, when putting this one together. What's the best piece of advice, writing or life-wise, that he ever gave you? He used to say that it's, if it ain't fun, it's not worth doing, was one of his favorite quotes. So, uh, and I think he brought that to, to his writing, too. He wanted to make the books fun to read. Uh, they're entertaining. Uh, and so I think uh, both maybe in, in, <laughs> in trying to write the books and maybe living your life, I think that was not a bad philosophy to follow. Did he ever think when he when he first started writing this series of books that it would last as long as it did and that people would want to keep coming back for more? No, I think he had no idea. I mean, he used to say that he was just trying to write a little paperback uh, pot boiler series uh, that uh, gave him the opportunity to, to be creative and do something that he liked to do. So he never never imagined, I think, that uh, uh, that it would become as popular as it did. It certainly lasted as long as it did. I'm sure that uh, was a continuing surprise for him. Is there ever any worry that as you continue this series that you'll run out of ideas or there are just too many undiscovered and mysterious things out there in the world's oceans and bodies of water that that won't be the case? Well, I, I think you touch on, on both elements, really. It's there. I mean, it's 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 a tough challenge because of the, the canon of books. There's, there's, this is the 26th one. So it's certainly a challenge not to repeat yourself. Uh, but as you say, there's, there, we're always finding out uh, new things about the, the seas and the ocean and, and other technological uh, discoveries that uh, create sort of new um, elements of, of, of conflict or adventure. So hopefully hopefully we can keep it going, but, uh, but it is a challenge, a uh, challenge to be fresh with it, no doubt. And I know that you yourself, you go out on uh, these NUMA expeditions. Does whatever is found in those find their way into the books? Uh, I think just once or twice. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good uh, uh, impetus for, for uh, adding some realism to the stories when they're searching for a shipwreck and uh, what it's like to dive, uh, dive down on a wreck and, and discoveries and, and so forth. So uh, I think from a, from a generic sense, it's, it's very helpful to the writing. Uh, but I think there's only been maybe one or two wrecks that have actually been incorporated into the stories. So. And I would hope it's not as uh, as dangerous and death-defying as, as the books make out that kind of exploration to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We're not uh, diving in, uh, uh, in the Himalayas or, or places like that. So, uh, yeah, I think we generally try to be a little little more safety conscious than, uh, than they end up being in the stories, no doubt. Or dodging bad guys left and right. 
right. Getting shot at in a way, yeah. <laughs> well, Dirk Kessler, thank you for joining us today to talk about the latest book in the series. It's Clive Kessler's The Devil's Sea. Can't wait to dive into it. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. In the last decade or so, polar bears have become the poster child of climate change. If you haven't been moved by images of solitary bears floating aimlessly on ice, then frankly, you don't have a heart. Author and wildlife researcher Alice Henderson knows what's at stake and harnesses the power of fiction to inform readers about the real-life dangers the world's polar bears face in her new eco-thriller, A Blizzard of Polar Bears. This is your second book featuring wildlife biologist slash, I like to say, survivalist, Dr. Alex Carter. And your first book, if people aren't familiar with it, featured wolverines, which you said a lot of people didn't even realize were real animals. But I think it's safe to say no one's going to make that mistake with this book and the animals you feature in it. Oh, I think that you're right. Polar bears are a lot more popular. <laughs> <laughs> so what drew you to write about the plight of polar bears and the study and the research going into trying to save them for this book? Well, I really wanted to choose species for this series. Each book is about a different species. And I really wanted to choose ones that are in particular peril right now. And the wolverine for my first book, there's actually less than 300 left in the lower 48. And for polar bears, of course, they've sort of become the face of climate change. Uh, the ice is breaking up much, much sooner every year and taking much longer to form in the fall. And polar bears starve during the summer months. So because this ice-free period is getting longer and longer, polar bears are starving for longer and longer. So I really wanted to bring attention to that plight and also talk about a lot of the neat facts about polar bears and hopefully have readers fall in love with these animals like I have. What is the, the most interesting thing that you learned about them during your research? Or what is the one fact that you hope that readers take away from it and just be like, I never knew that? There are so many neat facts. Like one is bears like grizzly bears that live on land will rub on trees to leave their scent so that other bears can find them. But on the ice, polar bears don't have anything like that. So they actually secrete scents through their paws. And they can leave these scent trails across the ice that enable them to do the same thing. They can follow a bear they want to meet and avoid a bear they don't want to meet. That's really cool. And another fascinating thing is polar bears will return to the same place to have cubs where they grew up. And the amazing thing is the ice is always changing and shifting, yet they are able to make it back to the same latitude and longitude to have their cubs. And it's something of a mystery of how they're able to do this. Um, since there's no landmarks they're following, obviously, and the ice is shifting. So scientists aren't quite sure how they're pulling this off. It's pretty neat. All right. So forgive my ignorance here, but I am going to ask, is a group of polar bears really called a blizzard? Well, when I came up with the idea for this series, I wanted each book to be the group name of the animal and the animal. But I seem to keep picking species that have no group name. <laughs> Wolverines are so solitary that they don't gather in groups. So I had to make up a name for them and came up with a solitude because they're so solitary. And again, with polar bears, there are group names for bears in general, but not for specific species. So uh, I threw out a few ideas to my editor about what a group name could be, perhaps a blizzard or frostbite 
or a whiteout, and we settled upon a blizzard. Knowing that you made those up, it also just seems, it seems so appropriate and so fitting that I think science should adopt these terms for these animals. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) How did you hit upon this idea of, you know, writing what's essentially, it's it's an eco-thriller. So it's really, it's engaging, it's exciting, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of twists and turns. But at the same time, we have such real science and research at its core. And it's so engaging. Like I, for, for a lot of people, I think if they were to just pick up a, a nonfiction book about polar bears, they might not be as interested in what's going on as, as you make it out in these books. It's really ingenious in a way. Thank you so much. I, you know, I thought if I wrote a nonfiction book, say about wolverines or polar bears, that the only people that would pick them up might be people who were already very familiar or were on board with their conservation. And I wanted to reach a wider audience. And thrillers and suspense are my favorite thing to read. And action scenes are my favorite thing to write. And I'm also a wildlife researcher myself. And I was out in a remote wildlife sanctuary in Montana and doing uh, some wildlife presence surveys. And the the location was so remote and isolated. And I thought, why aren't I you know, bringing these two worlds together? I'm a writer. I'm a wildlife researcher. I could write these suspenseful tales. And each one could be set in a different place about a different animal. And I really got inspired to create this series so that I could shed light on these animals' plights, but also tell a thrilling narrative that hopefully will keep readers engaged. And I do hope for your sake you never come across one of these situations that Dr. Carter does. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And So like I said, these books are really entertaining, but they also feel like a call to arms. And I I wanted to ask you, what what can people do if after reading this book or even just listening to this interview to help polar bears and and other endangered species? Well, in the back of each book, um, I have a section about where you can go to learn more and even their volunteer opportunities. And I would say that there's a lot of things people can do as individuals and as communities. I think there's a tendency to feel pretty hopeless right now and to feel like the problem is so insurmountable. But one thing people can do is encourage their representatives in Congress to pass things like the Pond Fin Conservation Act, which can restore and strengthen the Endangered Species Act, and also encourage them to pass legislation for renewable energy. And You can also do things in your own personal life. Um, For example, eating less meat is a huge one that can go toward tackling climate change. You know, have, say, a meatless Saturday with your family. And another cool thing you can do to really feel personally engaged is engage in some citizen science. There's so many neat projects out there that you can do either from your computer, say you can count rhinos on remote cameras in Africa from your computer, or you can go out into the field and say count monarch butterflies or take keep track of snowfall in your area or how the environment is changing, how precipitation is changing, and upload that to scientists who can then use that data to get some good legislation going. There's a neat polar bear project in particular you can do if you find yourself up in the Arctic. It's called the Whisker Print Project. And you can take a profile shot of a bear's muzzle on your camera and with a large telephoto, of course. And each polar bear on its muzzle, because their skin is black and their fur is transparent, when their whiskers grow out, they have a unique pattern of black spots that you can see their skin through their fur. 
And if you take a photo of this, it's a way to identify individual bears and their movements. And it's a great way to non-invasively track the movement of bears and keep track of where individuals are. I'm glad you clarified long telephoto lens because I was going to ask, you you can't get that close, can you? (laughs) (laughs) And would that be advisable, though? (laughs) So have you settled on the next animal you plan to write about? I have. And in fact, I just turned the manuscript into my editor. I decided upon mountain caribou. You know, most people think of caribou, they think of those the caribou that are barren ground caribou that live in Alaska and the Yukon and they roam in these vast herds of thousands. But mountain caribou are less well-known and they're a thing all their own. They have very small herds, usually less than 50. And instead of living on the tundra, they live in these steep mountains. And they'll climb up the mountain in the winter and use the tall snowpack to stand on. And they survive by pulling lichen off of tree limbs. So they have their own unique ecological niche. And we used to have them here in the lower 48, and they went extinct here in 2019. So I really want to address their plight and what they're facing and how we can help them. And it's so funny because having read a blizzard of polar bears, if there's anybody out there who doubts that you can make mountain caribou a thrilling story, <laughs> they they do not know what you're capable of because I know it's going to be enthralling. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's a great compliment. We've been talking with Alice Henderson. Like I said, the new book is A Blizzard of Polar Bears. Thank you for your time today and also for really working hard to bring the plight of these animals to light. My absolute pleasure, and I'm honored to be your guest today. Thank you. You know I have a rule about spoilers on this podcast. Namely, I don't say anything because I want you to be surprised if you decide to pick up one of the books I feature. But I have to tell you, it was really, really hard not to divulge any of the numerous twists and turns featured in Shay Earnshaw's adult fiction debut, A History of Wild Places. There are just so many of them. Take a listen to our interview and you'll see what I mean. There are so many layers to this story. We have someone who has a special talent for finding the missing, go missing himself. And he's looking for an author of a best-selling series who disappeared five years earlier. There's a secret society where a charismatic leader who's living off the grid. I mean, what was the inspiration behind this whole story? I actually grew up not far from Antelope, Oregon, which is a small town where a community called Rajneesh Puram was established back in the 80s. And the community was actually featured in a documentary on Netflix called Wild Wild Country for any listeners who've, who've watched it or are interested in learning more about it. Um, But so growing up not far from there, it was in the news quite a bit. You know, neighbors were talking about it. Um, And I remember the day when my father had seen a series. Well, it was more like a fleet. I think it was about two dozen Rolls Royces that were being driven out to the community. And I remember being really fascinated by the juxtaposition of that. Um, You know, this community was living off the land, they were attempting to live a simpler way of life. And yet the leader of the community um, had ordered all these Rolls Royces. And I had a lot of questions that really stuck with me for most of my life. And I think that really sparked my fascination with um, communities like this and wanting to better understand is if it's possible for a community like this to exist, is it sustainable um, or is it destined to fail? 
And I think it's a really fascinating social experiment that I really wanted to dig into in this book. And really, without giving too much away, you you play with how much people can be manipulated or led to believe a certain set of things or fact. And it's really mm. kind of scary. <laughs> I agree. And and you are right. It is a this book is a difficult one to talk about without giving anything away. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to play on this idea of can you can you trust your own thoughts? Can you trust the people around you? Um, and you know, our world isn't always what we think it is. And I, I really wanted my characters to um, question the world around them and question their own mind ultimately in the story. And through the unraveling of this book, um, we really come to learn that probably none of the characters should have trusted anything around them. And I know this is your your first foray into adult fiction. And I guess it kind of makes sense that you've been sitting on this story for so long, but it really because it really mm-hmm. doesn't seem like uh, you'd really be able to really get into the meat of it in, in a YA kind of novel. Mm, yeah, that that's very true. You know, and I started writing this book back in 2017, and I, I worked on it um, slowly throughout the years as I was writing other young adult novels. Um, and so it's a, it's a story that took me a while to write, I think, because it really does deal with some pretty deep, intense topics. And I wanted to make sure I, I did that right. Um, but yeah, it really isn't a story that I think I could have explored as a young adult novel. I know I kind of ran through at the top a few of the little plot points or or things to look for. Knowing that this is a book that's hard to talk about, what are you (laughs) saying to potential readers to entice them to pick it up? Mm, You know, I think it's really a book about fairy tales in a lot of ways. Um, But it's also a book about finding what home means for us. Um, for the characters, that's something that they each struggled with. You know, where do they belong? What is home to them? And, you know, I think there are some dark themes in this story, but ultimately I hope that readers come away at the end feeling like um, they have a better sense of their own place, their own home in the world. And, you know, maybe questioning their surroundings a bit, but but ultimately, I think it is about finding where we each belong. I'm glad you said fairy tales, because my next question mm-hmm. is about this book within a book that you've written, because you mm-hmm. do have uh, an author who's disappeared and she's known for, for these kind of fantastical kid books, I guess, in a way. And I'm, as I'm reading, as I was reading your book, mm-hmm. I was wondering is this allegory? Is this maybe your way of trying to bridge the gap between your young adult novels? And yes, this is now my adult novel. What does this this book within a book serve for you? Yeah, it, it was a, a nice segue, I suppose, in writing about a children's book author in my adult fiction novel. Um, but ultimately, I wanted readers to ask the question as to whether Maggie was real or not. Um, by providing these snippets of the books that Maggie, this fictional character, has written, um, I wanted readers to log in online and, and look and see if her book series really exists. And, you know, although it, it, it does feel rather fitting that she's a children's book author and I have written YA, um, I think Maggie really is 
what I have always hoped that an author would be like. You know, she's very reclusive and secretive and enigmatic, and she's full of mystery. And I just, I hope there's still authors like her out there in the world. I know I'm not like that, but but I love the idea um, that she's, and she's this author who vanished before her sixth and final book was written. And in the book, there's some speculation as to whether she did this on purpose. Was it a publicity stunt? Um, of course, I've had some people, you know, comment to me, am I going to vanish before a history well places <laughs> releases, uh, you know, to pull my own publicity stunt? I am not. At least I hope not. Um, but, yeah, I think she also was a really fun character to write in that sense because because I was able to tap into some of my own background as a writer and as an author. So it was it was a fun book to write for a lot of reasons, but that was definitely one of them. If you do disappear, we have one of the last exclusive interviews. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is right. <laughs> you know, I, I think it. a lot... questioned later. <laughs> yeah, well, um, but, so for your sake and my sake, we'll hope that that doesn't happen. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have probably th- thought about, you know, dropping out of their, their crazy, hectic lives and maybe trying to live a simpler life. Is mm-hmm. that something you've daydreamed about? Oh, of course. I mean, weekly, I would say, (laughs) you know, and I I suppose the last couple of years, some of us have been forced to experience that um, in some form or another. But yeah, I think I think the idea of especially going and living in a community like Pastoral, which is the fictional community in my book, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot that's appealing about that lifestyle. You know, it's it's a much slower pace of life. It's it's sort of an honest, good pace of life. Um, and then ultimately what happens in the book is we realize that the same sort of corruption we see in the outside world sort of creeps into these small communities anyway. So maybe there really is no <laughs> escaping some of the uh, the trials and tribulations of our modern modern culture and society. But yeah, I think the idea of um, creating a slower pace of life is is nice sometimes. But then I also, you know, I crave social media like the rest of us, and, and I, I get pulled back in. But I want readers to ask that question as well. I hope readers um, read the book and ask themselves, would they want to live in a community like Pastoral? Is that a type of life that they could live for a time? I was going to ask, you know, what would you miss most? But I think you answered that question. Mm-hmm. For me, it would probably be running water. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of those modern conveniences that we often take for granted can be pretty nice, you know, although I do think we would adapt fairly quickly as well. So I, I think it would be an interesting experiment for a short time, but maybe not forever. <laughs> I think if I didn't know any better that there was, let's say, running water in the outside world, I would <laughs> I would learn to adapt. But if I knew that that was mm-hmm. still there, it'd be really tough. Right, right. Yeah, it's that ignorance is bliss, old (laughs) saying, you know, as soon as you know what you could have, it's hard to give that up. (laughs) So now one reviewer described your book as ripe for a miniseries. Has there been any interest? Mm. Um, You know, there's been there's been a few murmurings behind the scene. Um, I will say for those who've read the book, you know that this would be a, a challenging book to adapt into film or TV. Um, there are some things I got away with in writing mm-hmm. the book because the reader couldn't see what was really happening. So I could keep the curtain halfway pulled. Um, and in, in a ad- adaptation format, 
it would be tricky. It's possible. You know, we've had some discussions and um, it could be done, but it would be a delicate balance for sure. Definitely, <laughs> Without giving anything away here. Definitely some creative uh, screen screenwriting would have to mm-hmm. would have to help you out there. But then again, you yep, know, you're exactly right. I love having read a book and, and knowing that a book is almost that difficult to adapt only because mm. that's what makes books so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a medium that does allow you to do certain things that you can only do in in book form. And I really took liberties with that on this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully we've enticed a few other people to go and, and pick it up and see mm. what it's all about. We've been talking with Shay Earnshaw. The book is A History of Wild Places. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Lisa. This was a lot of fun. If the winter weather has you yearning for someplace tropical, the Hawaiian setting featured in Robert McCaw's Koakane Detective series is just the ticket. Treachery Times 2 is the fourth book in the series, and Robert started out our interview by catching us up on the action we've missed thus far. Koa is, uh, starts off as a, a chief detective in the Hilo, Hawaii uh, Police Department. He uh, frequently deals with uh, murder cases, and he has a very interesting backstory in that as a teenager, uh, he had an altercation with his father's nemesis and uh, in the ensuing fight killed the man. Um, uh, he killed him in a remote cabin. Uh, and um, after spending a lot of time uh, thinking about and uh, trying to figure out how he was going to extricate himself from this position, um, he decided to cover up the crime by faking a suicide. So there are four independent stories. You can essentially read them in any order that you want. There are a few references back and forth, but um, in um, the this fourth book, you see two uh, different stories woven together. One is a, a story about his backstory, uh, because uh, the grandson of the man he kills comes to the big island and starts asking questions. And as he asks more and more questions, Koa is literally forced to investigate his own crime. And step by step by step, his um, cover-up of what he did as a, as a teenager um, uh, comes perilously close to being um, uh, forced into disclosure. That's one story. And the other story uh, involves um, uh, his friend, who's the uh, senior military police officer at uh, Pohakaloa, which is the largest U.S. military um, base in the Pacific. Uh, which is uh, in the process in the book of testing a, a super weapon called uh, Demos. Uh, and uh, uh, he gets drawn into an espionage investigation uh, involving um, uh, the corruption of, of Demos. I love how this book opens in really the most Hawaiian of fashions, which is a volcanic earthquake that unearths a grave that a killer thought that they had hidden pretty well. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me um, um, that so much of Hawaii, um, and I'm talking about the big island now, which is the largest of the Hawaiian islands, is driven by um, its 
volcano uh, uh, activity. I mean, it's uh, uh, from the 1980s until uh, uh, 2018 it was one of the longest um, uh, continuous eruptions in recorded human history. Uh, so um, Pele, who is the personification of the Hawaiian volcano, is is a, really an important uh, legend, an important myth in Hawaii. And people speak about Pele as though uh, uh, she was in the room. I mean, it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a reference to the volcano that affects people's lives every day. And one of the things I've done in all four books, uh, at least I hope I've done, is um, uh, Hawaii itself is a character. Uh, not the Hawaii that you see um, on Waikiki or West Maui, but what I call the real Hawaii, um, the people um, with extreme ethnic diversity that you see in Hawaii with a miracle, beautiful language uh, that you hear spoken uh, with a very tortured history of relationships with the United States, which expropriated the islands. Um, uh, and with all of the problems that um, we see in other parts of the country, but with a special tilt in Hawaii because of its uh, extreme isolation um, uh, geograph geographically um, and uh, from its very peculiar history uh, with, uh, with the United States. It's obvious in your writings that you have this love for Hawaii and I was I was curious, what what's your connection? Well, it's actually interesting. I went to Hawaii, to the Big Island, for the first time in the, in the eighties, and I just kind of fell in love with the place. There's a there's a magic to the mountains. Um, there's a magic to the the, the diversity. Where I actually was standing on a beach at sunset with palm trees behind me. And I turn around and I look away from the ocean, and there are the palm trees. And then in the distance, there's Mauna Kea, which is snow-capped. And because it's snow-capped, the uh, uh, red from the sunset has turned the top of the mountain red. Uh, it just was a, a, a magical moment for me. And I started going back to Hawaii again and again. I started traveling all of the back roads. Um, I did what many, many Hawaiians do every day, which is to talk story, which is, uh, 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 you know, everything from uh, um, uh, what you did this morning to uh, a story about uh, one of the Hawaiian myths. Uh, I met uh, uh, some police officers out there. Um, I uh, met a lot of, of, of people who helped me understand the culture and the, uh, and, the, and the history. I did a lot of research, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to share this with readers. Um, uh, and I was a lawyer. I practiced uh, a lot of litigation and criminal law. Um, I knew uh, how to dig out facts. That was one of the most important things that I did. And I'd always loved mysteries. And so it all came together as a, as a, a way of telling people about Hawaii wrapped up in what I hope are interesting and fun and sometimes surprising uh, mysteries. 
I want to get back to this latest mystery because, you know, it's it's a, a really entertaining read. It has everything you expect a, a police procedural murder mystery to have, twists and turns, things that you don't expect, you know, really great characters. But I know that you've said that this story in particular explores two of your favorite themes, which are human flaws and the compulsion to hide misdeeds. And you really do give readers some pause as you're reading this, as you're trying to figure out how you feel about Koa and what he's done in the past and how he's tried to rectify that in the present. One of the things that I I discovered uh, uh, in uh, practice is that um, human beings have this incredible um, desire to hide what they perceive as their flaws or their wrongdoing. Uh, and one of my favorite favorite stories about this is that I represented a, a, a guy in testimony. Uh, and as I was preparing him, I asked him, have you ever been arrested or convicted of a crime? And I got this wishy-washy waffling answer. And I, I, my instincts told me that there was something there. And this guy was going to go in. I knew he was going to get asked this question, had he ever been arrested? And um, it was perfectly clear to me that he was hiding something uh, and that he was probably prepared to lie about it. Uh, And I pushed him and I pushed him. And finally, he said, I'm just so embarrassed. He said, I was once I was once arrested for illegal duck hunting. And I thought to myself, here's a man who was almost prepared to go into formal testimony and commit perjury because he was ashamed of the fact that he had once uh, gone uh, duck hunting in some illegal way. Uh, And it just, for me, it personified this notion that we want to hide from uh, from uh, 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 any criticism of, of what we've done uh, in in the in the past, and that's a driving factor in a lot of human conduct, and it it's a it's a godsend for authors because it gives you lots to play with. Uh, so that's that's one uh, uh, one of the themes that I I really I really like. We've been talking with Robert McCall. The new book is Treachery Times Two. It's a great read, especially, you know, as we're getting into the long nights of winter and you're dreaming of someplace warmer and nicer. <laughs> well, that's true, because the weather in Hawaii is generally very nice, except it's been very bad this past week. <laughs> Robert, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much, Lisa, for having me. It's a real uh, pleasure to chat with you, and uh, I hope that your readers enjoy Treachery Times, too. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we tackle that New Year's resolution to get fit from a different angle by diving into the history of women's fitness. Until then, bend down, pick up that phone, and lift it. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.